Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. Welcome everybody back to the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Okay, we're going to do it again. We are going to talk about something very controversial. We are going to talk about wolves. And if you're a fan of the show or you've been listening for a while, you'll know that in nearly 200 episodes of the Animals to the Max podcast, wolves have been the most featured animal. They are the hottest topic right now. And whether you love them, whether you hate them, they really need to be discussed. They're changing all the time regarding what's going on in the world of wolves and how we are managing them. And right now, in this day and age, as I record this, wolves are in trouble. They recently have been taken off the endangered species list, and now states around the country are currently hunting wolves. They are managing how they hunt them, and some of the practices are just so inhumane. And anyway, long story short, we get into it more in this podcast. But A bigger question that we answered during this interview is, why do we hate wolves? People so passionately either love wolves or they so passionately hate wolves. And on the show today, I have the perfect person to answer the question. On the show, I have wolf biologist and lead researcher, John Vucetich on the show. He actually is just wrote a book, his book, Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature, is going to be out soon on October 12th. John has been studying wolves for 25 years in Isle Royale. Isle Royale is a remote island in Lake Superior near Michigan's border with Canada. It's a car-free island wilderness full of forests and lakes, and it's a place where moose and wolves actually roam. And believe it or not, on Isle Royale, they have the longest study of a predator and prey relationship and system in history. This study has been going on since 1959, and for 25 years, John has been that lead researcher studying the wolves and the moose, the predator and prey impact, the ecology. It is very fascinating. I had such a good time talking to John. We, you know, go more in depth of why people are so passionate about wolves, why they hate them, why they love them. We also talk about what you can do at home and how you can have a civil, can I say that one more time? how you can have a civil conversation with somebody who maybe does not like wolves. He gives some key pointers on how, you know, to how to raise awareness without getting in a full-on fist fight with somebody. Once again, people are so passionate about it. So with that said, this is a very, very good interview. John also goes into what's going on now currently with the Biden administration. They are actually currently not really stepping up to the plate and they are kind of ending protections for all gray wolves. We had thought that maybe the administration would jump in and help save wolves and it turns out they aren't right now. And I asked John why, because I think a lot of us had hoped that maybe this new administration would help wolves and they really are not taking action. So John answers that to the best of his ability and uh, it's just a very interesting interview, an awesome conversation. Now, normally I would encourage you to listen and join us for the after show, which I still encourage you to do. Head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max to listen to all of our after show interviews. But I wanted to include the full interview 
interview here with John. He didn't have much time for the after show, and I thought, you know what, let's just condense the whole thing into one interview. So you get a bonus portion of the Animals to the Max podcast. The after show, this episode, is going to be included. But I do encourage you, though, to head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max to check out other after shows. We have some awesome content. We have hours of podcasts available for Patreons only that you can access just by joining our Patreon page. Okay, with that said, let's get into it. Let's talk about wolves. John, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, I pronounced your last name right on record. Are you are you impressed? <laughs> I am impressed. It's not an easy one to do. And you know, there's something peculiar about my last name. It's Croatian. And the root of it is, uh, is V-U-C in, in, uh, when it's been anglicized. But uh, the real root is V-U-K, a Croatian word for wolf. And what? so my last name uh, seems to suggest I was predestined uh, to, to, to study wolves. I think you were predestined. And looking at your resume, man, it is so impressive. For 25 years, John, you've been the lead researcher uh, of the wolves and moose of I, um, Isle Roel in um, like that project in Michigan, which is insane. I remember reading about that when I went to school for biology at Boise State. Yeah, my goodness, it's it's uh, it's the longest study of any predator prey system in the world. It began in 1959, long before I was born, and over all those years, there have been uh, three primary investigators, and I'm the third in the in the in that lineage. Dude, congratulations! And let's tell the listeners what that is. By the way, if someone's listening, they're like, Isle Royale, Royale, what is that? Yeah, sure. You know, um, Isle Royale is a national park. It's uh, located in Lake Superior, so in just the upper part of, of Michigan. Uh, you can only get to it by boat or by flying in and landing on a seaplane. And um, what's distinctive about it ecologically, or one of its distinctions, is that it has a population of wolves and a population of moose. More particularly, the wolves have only one option for their dinners, and that would be moose. And, and moose basically die of only one or two causes. They either starve to death or they get killed by wolves. And so it's what uh, ecologists refer to as a single predator, single prey system. That's very important because most other places in the world are more complicated. And they have more species of predators and more species of prey all living together. That's just the way nature is. And, and that's really complicated, really challenging to study. It's important to study it, but it's good to have a few places where things are a little simpler. Now, mind you, not simple, just simpler. And, and Isle Royale is one of those places, again, just because there's a single predator, single prey, and so the relationships are a little simpler. So since 1959, we've been studying that. And so what, what have we learned so far since 1959? My goodness. Um, you know, I'd have to say that, uh, well, a, a couple of things. First of all, some of the things that we now just like plain old take for granted about wolves um, were um, either solidified in terms of knowledge or discovered for the first time on Isle Royale. So, for example, the idea that wolves have a tendency to take prey that are older or sicker, um, I think everybody knows that. Um, but we, we didn't know that forever. Uh, and the place that we first learned that was on Isle Royale National Park uh, before I, I came along. And um, even, again, some of these things are so basic, like wolves live in packs. And we now know that packs are family groups. They're basically mm -hmm. parents and offspring from previous years. It's basically common knowledge. But, man, we did not always know that. 
1959, when research started on Isle Royale, it was suspected that that was the case. But uh, Dave Meech, one of the, the first researchers, um, you know, really did a lot of work to kind of figure out that that's exactly what's going on. So that's, you know, going digging deep into the history of the project for some things that we've learned. I would say in my tenure, um, two lessons are kind of stand out, maybe three. One is that um, it's a really important question to ask, what is the influence of wolves on their prey? And here, mm. you just like to use a little bit of jargon, but the jargon's not too bad. They say, well, maybe the system is top-down, meaning that there's influence from the upper trophic levels, that's the carnivores, and that has it kind of trickles on down to the prey. The other view is that it's bottom-up, which means that, no, it's, it's moose at the lower trophic levels um, that influence what's happening up above. And so, um, you know, ecologists have been basically interested to understand when they look at systems around the world, are they top down or are they bottom up? Are they driven by the predators or are they driven by the prey? And one of the things that we've learned on Isle Royale is that the answer, even in one place, can change over time. You know, we've had situations where we could watch for 10 or 20 years and it looks really strongly top down. It looks really strongly as the wolves are driving all the dynamics. And my goodness, if you watch something for 20 years and got an answer, you'd think that must be a really solid answer until you watch for the next 20 years and you discover then it's different. For the next 20 years, it's really driven from the bottom up by the prey. And so, you know, scientists are good at um, posing questions and then uh, we answer them. But often our first rendition of the question is kind of simple. Is it driven from the top or the bottom? Yes or no? And then what we discover on Isle Royale is the answer is yes and no. It depends on the time. I, and, that's crazy. Dude, you're taking me back to ecology class in college. Seriously, we learned about this. And I remember thinking, well, what's the answer? And we didn't know. <laughs> and we still right, don't right, know right. 10 years later. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, you know, another thing that we've learned that stands out in my mind uh, has to do with our capacity to predict what happens next. Um, so, you know, science, the hallmark of science has got to do with whether you can predict things. If you think about physics or chemistry, you know, you can't claim that you know what goes on unless you can predict what's going to happen next. You know, you drop the ball off the cliff or you mix these two chemicals. If you can't predict what happens next, you can't claim to know the science. And so that standard for knowledge, you know, is, you know, a little bit inherited by ecology. But what, I think what we discover on Isle Royale is that you can understand a great deal about ecology and still not predict what happens next. And let me give some examples. Um, the most important things that have ever happened on Isle Royale are things that could not have been predicted. One great example would be in 1980, um, a disease uh, affected the wolf population. And the disease was canine parvovirus. It's a kind of a well-known disease. It affects domestic dogs. And uh, for 40 years, it's been a part of uh, dog owners' lives. So you get vaccinated. You get your dogs vaccinated for canine parvo when they're young. But the thing to appreciate is if you go back to 1980, or we should go back a little bit earlier, 1975, canine virus did not exist anywhere in the universe. Um, it was a newly evolved disease sometime in the late 1970s. And when it was newly evolved, it came from a cat disease. It uh, started to infect dogs and other canids like wolves spread around the world rather quickly and made its way to Isle Royale. It got to Isle Royale because a person brought it to Isle Royale accidentally, either by bringing a dog to the island or maybe from, uh, you know, feces, dog feces on a boot print or something like that. Oh. In any case, that caused the collapse of the wolf population back in 1980. The wolf population recovered from it, but it did kind of reset the system in a way that drove things for the next 20 years. Here's my point. 
you never could have predicted that a disease that didn't even exist was going to come to Isle Royale and set things up for the next 20 years. That's one of several kind of big examples of, uh, of things happening on Isle Royale that you can still understand what's going on, but man, you're not going to predict it. And that's super important because in the rest of the world outside of Isle Royale, our relationship with nature, especially how we harvest populations or hunt them, whether it be commercially or recreationally, it depends so much on our belief that we can predict things well. We've got to be more modest on that point. Um, the science now is quite clear. We're not good at predicting. And, and that's, I mean, that's just the way that it is. We can still harvest populations in other places, uh, but man, it takes a great bigger dose of humility than is, than is often the case. Yeah, and that's a great segue because right now, Wolves, I mean, they lost protection from the Endangered Species Act. They they were protected. And, man, I hate to say it, but I, I, I live in Idaho. And as much as we tried to rally together and bring awareness, and, I mean, I remember, I mean, we had on the Wolf Conservation Society. I, I did a podcast interview. I tried to do some videos. A few of them went viral trying to get people to stand up for wolves. As much as we tried that back in July, they just passed where you can – they Idaho pretty much wants to eliminate, I think over 90% of them. Right. Right. Is, is that correct? And so, yes. and so you, you're basically saying we do not have the science to back it up. We cannot predict the outcome of what's going to happen if we completely, you know, overhunt these wolves. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, no, that, that's, it's perfectly applicable. And, and sadly the case in Idaho and in several other States where there's aggressive interest to hunt wolves to overhunt them, really the situation is even worse than that because um, it's fine enough to hunt a population when there's good reason to do so. Like, for example, for um, for sustenance to eat the meat, or maybe commercially because uh, you you know you're a fisherman, commercial fisherman, and your livelihood depends on this. Those are certainly fine instances to hunt, and they have good reasons for hunting. In the case of, of, of Idaho and several other states that are trying to aggressively hunt wolves, that there actually isn't a good reason in the first place to, to do the hunting. It's, it's essentially motivated by, by hatred. And here's where we get to something that has been important for me in Iowa, and it actually is, is the third most important lesson, and it, and it dovetails with this business of wolf hunting. Um, while the job that I do as a scientist is mostly at the population level. There's a population of wolves and they fluctuate in abundance from one year to the next. And I want to figure out why. And that's what I devote my scientific life to. But one of the things that I've come to understand, and this is very basic, but sometimes it's the most basic things that are important. And I've now known this for a while, but I didn't always know it. You know, when you watch these wolves, you realize they have lives. They're individuals in addition to being members of a population. You know, they, they have a memory of what happened yesterday. They have plans for what they're going to do next. They have interests. They have relationships with other wolves. And um, just like humans. And, and you don't kill creatures like that unless there's a reason to do so, a good reason to do so. And, and when you realize that, um, that wolves have lives like this, it's, a, it's only a tiny step to realize that other animals have lives like this too. Moose have lives as well, and they have a memory of what happened yesterday and plan for what goes on next. Uh, the robins that live outside our houses and our yards do as well, and squirrels. And, and what you realize is that you know, these, these aren't resources to manage sustainably. There are brothers and sisters in which we share the planet with, and, and we got to forge a much better relationship with them 
And uh, that, that, frankly, has been the most important lesson that I've had from studying populations on our royals to realize they're made up of individuals that have interests. Yeah, just like us. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's that simple, and that's why that's why we can call them brothers and sisters, really. And you know, the um, the Ojibwa people—they're the a Native American group that lives in the place and and used the land before white people came to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and, and Isle Royal. And part of their creation story is that the is that wolves and humans are are literally brothers, and uh, and they and they shape their relationship with wolves on that premise. And I, I think that there's a tendency to say, okay, well, that's very fine for, for Native Americans, but like other people can't believe that because we're, we have a, a modern science that we have to attend to, and our modern science doesn't allow us to believe that we're siblings in that way. And you know what? I just don't think that's true. Um, modern science is importantly about Darwin. And there's one of the most important things Darwin showed us is that we all have common ancestors. If you go back far enough, uh, we came from some ancestral creature that was the same. And in that way, we are literally uh, relatives with these other animals. We're not brother and sister in the sense that you actually have a sibling that you grew up with, that was raised by the same mother. Uh, but, but we are, if you like, if you use the word just a little loosely, we're cousins for sure, and certainly relatives. And, and, and so being relatives, you know, there's a certain expectation for how you relate to them. And, uh, and, we, and we don't relate to, to enough animals in, in that sort of way, and, and we should. No, and I just, man, and you know, we have done, so we're almost at 200 episodes of the Animals to the Max podcast, and wolves have been the hottest topic. We've covered them. I'd say we've done like eight or nine episodes just regarding wolves because they're such a hot topic. And what is it? Like, I just, I, I just, what is it? Yeah. Why, are, why are people so fascinated and why is there so much hatred? Yeah. You know, there's there's two answers. There's an easy answer to the question, and there's a harder one, harder answer. The easy answer is that um, this is for good and for for worse. Wolves aren't just animals to us. They're powerful symbols. We've made them into more than just animals. Mm -hmm. And in so being powerful symbols, they stand for some people for all of the things that we hate about nature and are afraid about nature. And it's okay to be afraid about some things about nature, you know. If you're in close quarters with a grizzly bear, you should be afraid of that. And there's some things that you dislike about nature. I don't particularly like mosquitoes and black flies, but, you know. So, so anyways, here's my point, though, is that wolves have become symbols for all of that. But at the same time, they're symbols for all the things that we love and cherish about nature. But, and here's the part that's unfair about it. A wolf doesn't know it's a symbol of anything. A wolf is just trying to make its way in the world and has got to do so with humans being in the same world. And and we treat them a little unfairly. We put them on a pedestal sometimes when we probably shouldn't and we and we demonize them in other cases when we shouldn't. So that's the reason that, that uh, wolves are so, I think it's fine to say sensationalized. Mm. It's a legitimate use of the word in this particular case. And the, and the reason that that's the case again is because we've, we've turn them into symbols. The harder question, and, 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 and so it's, there's a way in which it's okay, humans make symbols, that's what we do, it's what makes us uniquely human, and it, it, it is an important way for us to sort out what we think about the rest of the natural world when we're thinking about wolves. So it's, it's, it's just a complicated mess, good and bad. The other thing that I would say is, well, why wolves? Why are wolves these special symbols and not some other creature? 
That's the harder question. I don't think anyone fully knows the answer, but there's a couple of clues. And the clues have to do with how it is that we compare with wolves. Um, most carnivores and most animals don't live social lives. They mostly live solitary lives on their own. And wolves live in packs, and packs are impressively similar to what a human family is. Mm. And so we see a lot of ourselves in wolves, and this is the reason that dogs uh, make such amazing pets, because dogs know how to get along in a family environment. It's the reason that a cat is so different. You, you kind of live next to cats. You don't really live with them, and, uh, and it's because they're solitary. Uh, but a dog becomes part of the family, literally, and it's because we all know how to live in families. The other thing about um, about wolves is that um, they like to eat the same things that lots of humans like to eat. Um, many humans eat meat, and we don't eat any old kind of meat. We tend to eat um, large herbivores, uh, whether wild or domestic, elk, deer, moose, cattle. Uh, these are our favorite moose, are the, our favorite meat items when humans eat meat, and they are our favorite items for wolves to eat as well. And so when we look at wolves, we don't know, and, and I think this is true for anyone who's honest, we don't know whether to be jealous of them or, admi or to admire them, because we compete with them for the same things that we want to eat. Um, and, uh, and again, there's these, this, cause humans are complicated. Some of us see it as a, as a point of competition and some of us see it as a point of admiration. And I think all the complexities of human, human wolf relationships kind of rise from, from those ideas. Yeah. That was a great explanation. I, yeah, I just, cause they're so similar to us. It makes sense. Yeah. They're so similar to us and compete for the same resources. It's like this. I, yeah, I just and even when you go back towards media, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, when you watching Disney shows like Beauty and the Beast, when they had the wolves, I'll never forget that. And then I was so I remember watching the newest remake and I was telling my wife, I was like, oh, this is awful. They're making wolves look horrible. But even the media portrays them as these aggressive and like it, it, it that doesn't do any help at all. No, um, it's, it's everywhere in all of our in all of our mythologies, not only Western mythologies, but but non-Western mythologies. Again, the big bad wolf. Yeah. Oh uh, yes. Um, what is that? Yeah. Little Red Riding Hood. Yes, Little Red Riding Hood. Rome was, and they're not all negative. Uh, Rome was founded uh, by two humans that were suckled by a she wolf because they had been orphaned, Romulus and Remus, and so they figure into our positive relationships as well. Uh, the Mongolians have a creation story where they believe that humans were the descendants of the union between a deer and a wolf. And then I already mentioned an Ojibwe myth story, uh, creation story, where the humans and wolves are, are siblings. And so so they are, they are everywhere in our cultures. Uh, Norse mythology has Odin, has two of his pets are a wolf. And they have some symbolic value in terms of knowledge and so forth. And so, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're everywhere. Um, yeah. So, Judd, let's just let's just cut to the chase. What is going on currently? It is we're recording this episode. It is going to be the fall soon, 2021. What is going on in the world of wolves cuz it is ever changing. And yeah. why do we need to take action? Cuz there's a bunch of stuff going on. My goodness. Um there's two main issues in the United States. One of them have and they they get a little mixed up, but they're probably best to kept kept separate. One is whether and how and why wolves should be protected by the Endangered Species Act. Um, at present, they are mostly not 
protected. There's a, a few exceptions. Red wolves are protected by the Endangered Species Act. Mexican wolves are protected by the Endangered Species Act. They live in Arizona, New Mexico. Excepting for that, wolves are not protected by the Endangered Species Act, and there's an interest to hunt them. And that's the second issue, is hunting them, whether and how we should hunt them. And here there's a little bit of legal stuff that's kind of important. It's simple, but it's important to keep it in mind. Wildlife in the United States is generally managed by the states. And there's only a couple of exceptions. And one of the key exceptions is when we decide as a nation that a species should be protected by the Endangered Species Act. And in that case, the management is conducted by the federal government. And generally, in those cases, you can't hunt them anymore. And so um, because wolves are not protected in states like Wisconsin and Idaho and other states, um, they're allowed to be hunted. But those decisions for hunting, it doesn't guarantee hunting, it doesn't require hunting, it just means that each state has the choice to make about it. And so, and so what we see right now in several states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, are Jeez. these choices, these questions about hunting. And several of the states are, are handling it quite poorly. And here now we can switch from like what's just a legal circumstance, who gets to make the decision now, to what is basically just kind of the, the, um, you know, the public discourse. Um, Wolves are, for, for again, for better or worse, they are a bit a part of our culture war. They are tied to uh, certain threads of conservatism. They are tied to certain interest in hunting more generally. They are, turn, they are tied to interest in, in gun rights and ownership and usage. And, and it's kind of a big mixed ball of wax, or, big, or just a big mixed ball. Um, and so I, th I think it is important to kind of appreciate it in, in that mixture that it is. And, and the other thing that happened is that, you know, while Trump was in the presidency, I think that some of those groups of people uh, learned to be bolder than they had been in the past. And they exercised that boldness. And one of the manifestations of that was a hatred for wolves. And that hatred of wolves had always been there. And and they and these folks who hate wolves had tried to exercise that hatred, but I, I think Trump made it easier for them to exercise that hatred, made it uh, more acceptable to do so, and Idaho is a good example of what happens when that occurs. Most people don't agree with that stuff. It's it's plain that most people don't agree with that stuff. Uh, but you have a small group of people who have become kind of kind of influential. It is disgusting. And by the way, if I don't, I'm pretty sure the stats are wolves kill 0.002% of livestock in Idaho. And that's been the average, I think, for three or four years now. It is there. <laughs> it is like, I mean, it is, I think they kill like, I think like over a hundred you know, head of cattle or sheep a year compared to the thousands that are killed by disease that that I, I just and 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 weather. It's not like wolves are taking this crazy toll. So as a scientist myself, I mean, we we, we don't have the data to back up like why we should be hunting them. And that's why it's so incredibly frustrating. And it's a yeah. small group of bad apples that need to go. And yeah. it is it, it's so disgusting. And when I posted on social media we have a I, I have a very large tiktok following so i have like uh you know one one and a half million followers just just yeah. on tiktok alone when i did a video the younger generation had no idea that yeah. this that, that that this was a thing wait what people are they're gonna hunt wolves again is this a, how how can we stop this it is a group of bad rotten apples we have to get rid of 
Yeah, yeah. No, so many, so many things here. Um, uh, where does Wendy Wong begin? So when people um, make arguments about wanting to hunt wolves, they cite the things that you cited. They uh, they kill livestock. They're going to ruin hunting, and they're dangerous to humans. And and basically, those things are either just plain old false or they're gross exaggerations. Idaho again is a great example. Um, elk hunting in Idaho oh, is yeah. is amazing. I mean, it's it's these are the these are the glory days of elk hunting in Idaho. And so it's really difficult to make the case that wolves are infringing on that in, in any way at all. And as you'd mentioned quite accurately and properly, um, wolves, um, the wolves' impact on livestock is, is extremely modest. Now, granted, if you're the livestock owner and you're the person whose livestock got killed, I mean, that's a problem for you. And, and you know, we're a rich enough society. We are a generous enough society. We're a creative enough society. We should be able to figure that problem out. How do you, uh, uh, you know, compensate or deal with the fact that one of us, somebody who raises meat for a living, livestock for a living, for the benefit of other people, you know, when they lose livestock to wolves, how can we compensate that? And, th and there are there are programs in place to do that. If the programs aren't perfect or when the programs aren't perfect, you know, that should be dealt with. But the way of dealing with an imperfect program for compensation is not to go and kill wolves. It's to it's to deal with the, the compensation. Yes. And then, yeah. yeah. And really quick, I just want to say just to add on the it is the glory days of elk hunting. And I we harvest we've been harvesting more elk these last few years in Idaho hunters than we ever have before. It is like you said, the so like the data, the data shows like we like hunters are there are collecting enough elk. There are plenty of elk out there. So I just wanted to say that I think it was like over 20,000 are killed a year in Idaho. It's either 20 or 30,000. It's insane. Yeah. right now how great the elk hunting is here and i'm not a hunter myself but yeah so yeah. the wolves are not impacting it sorry john i had to put that in there no that's perfect get me all it. spiced up over here no no it's perfect and then the other thing that came to mind as we were just talking about this topic of people who are in disagreement about wolves is that um it is hard to categorize people uh, i mean there are um bad people in the world there are mean people in the world um but it's also the case that um, we have to live with those people. And, and some people, I mean, they're our fellow citizens. And some people who hate wolves and want to kill them, when you speak with them, you realize, well, they're, they're basically a decent human being. I mean, they have families and they have friends and they, they have coworkers that like them. And then, and then you realize they have this perspective on wolves that is just out of this world as far as you and I are concerned and some of our listeners. And and that circumstance always perplexes me. And and here's what I believe, is that some people, you're never going to change their mind. The only way that we're going to change as a society is when those people eventually get old and pass away. Mm. They get replaced by younger people who think differently. But I'd like to not have to wait that long. And, and I think, I believe, not only as an act of faith, but I've seen it in my own life, there are some people um, who hate wolves, but they can be reached and their minds can be changed. And I, and it's, and I don't know why they hate wolves. I don't know if it's because they have the wrong information, but if they were given the right information, they would think differently. And, and we know we live in a society where the exchange of information is difficult because we tend to believe information that comes from our friends and we tend to disbelieve information that comes from people who don't look like us or talk like us, hang out in the same circles, read the same newspapers. And so we have to break that terrible, terrible cycle, not only about wolves, but about other social issues. 
And so what I always do is I really encourage people to talk to people who don't like wolves and just ask them why. And, and I would say, and I do this myself, I practice it regularly, at first, don't try to change their mind. That's a step too quick, too far. Just try to understand them. You don't have to agree with them, but it, but they're not insane, not all of them. I mean, they don't qualify as, 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 as you know, psychotic. They have reasons. You might not agree with their reasons. You might think their reasons are based on false fact, but learn about them and, and, and just keep asking why. Why do you feel that way? And tell them how you feel. And we need desperately for there to be more connections with people that we disagree with uh, differently. One of the things that will happen when you do that is that not always, not even often, but occasionally, you'll make a friend with somebody who disagrees with you. And if you make a friend with somebody who disagrees with you, that is the circumstance where there's the greatest likelihood for changing minds. But you do have to be prepared because you might change your own mind about some things too. Maybe not about wolves, but maybe about something else. Uh, and uh, and man, that I do believe that's got to be the way forward. Yeah, and I feel like people, most are just super passionate about either loving them or hating them. And I think what you can... Kill them with kindness, but you can also kill someone in in a di- well, not kill someone. That sounds horrible, John. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could use facts if you have data. Most people will respect when you have the facts from a scientist to say, "Well, here's the facts." You know, when people say that you know they kill all the livestock. Well, in the last few years, we've seen it's point zero zero two. Did you know that? Or they take the biggest, baddest bulls. Well, actually, blah 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 blah. Like, and so. I think you can come armed with facts and that I I think that's super helpful. I think what a lot of people hear, and I'm just speaking from the hundreds of comments I've gotten from people who are irate with me or I, or love wolves. Um, I would say that they are mad because we introduced here in Idaho, a larger, more aggressive Canadian wolf. Can we put this crap shoot of a rumor to rest because I am so tired of like people telling me that they've seen 200 pound wolves and yeah. they're not yeah. the wolves that used to live here. Let's get into that. My goodness. Um, yeah, I mean, these are, um, they're, they're, the rumors, they're, they're false rumors. They, they spread easily. Um, yeah, the, the, the wolves in Idaho are the kind of wolf that belong there. They they can be in the neighborhood of 100 pounds, but that's not too big for a wolf that lives in Idaho. That's perfectly fine for a wolf that's killing elk. Uh, yeah, a 200-pound wolf is, is simply not not credible. And um, and so but, – but here becomes the tough part. And again, this is, now I'm talking about not what the facts are, but I'm talking about how do you have a conversation that – you know, they heard from a friend of theirs that that's the case. And you're not one of their friends in some cases. You're somebody else. And again, I want to emphasize the things that sometimes are important in our social relationships. You look different. You talk different. I look different. I talk different. You know, I'm a scientist. You're a scientist. So I, I we have pretty good mastery of the facts. But there's a lot of listeners that may, you know, they kind of have a vague understanding of the facts that wolves aren't trouble. Uh, for human safety and they're not trouble for livestock but they don't have great mastery of the facts and then and then when you're in a in an environment where you're talking to somebody who disagrees with you and you say well where'd you get that fact from and i'm like well i don't know i i heard it on the radio well i heard something different on a different radio station and so you do get into this it's just a legitimate challenge in our society of of we don't all have the same understanding of the facts and here's that's just the world we live in and so the next question is how do you deal with that And I I think one of the things is that when we engage in these conversations, 
you partly have to do it with different expectations. If you're going to talk to somebody who disagrees with you and you're going to talk to them once and never again, you shouldn't probably have too many expectations. And the best expectation you have is just understand better where they're coming from and what their hangups are. And when they don't agree with your facts, try and figure out why and what you can do to understand your own facts better. The other thing I'd say is that 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 expectation is kind of modest because you're not going to get very far. And so what that means is that you have to find a person who, with whom you disagree with and expect to talk to him more than once and expect to talk to him. And then you realize, oh, wow, I'm a little shy on some of the facts that I was dealing in. I kind of understand them a little bit, but not well enough to satisfy that person. So I'm going to go do my homework, better understand those facts. So I have a conversation with that same person next week, whatever, in the coffee house, in the bar, whatever the place is that's friendly for you, playing cards, whatever it may be. And, um, and you say, hey, since we last talked, I learned a little bit more about those facts that I was talking about. And I know that some people who love wolves, they also deal in misfacts. I think it's innocent. It's not manipulative, but they don't always understand facts as well as they ought to. And and that's what an amazing opportunity to go to somebody who disagrees with you and say, hey, you know what? I kind of thought that wolves never killed livestock because some people think that's the case. It's not true. They do. And when they do, you know, it's a concern. And so I realized that it does happen occasionally. And now I understand that, wow, the farmer that that happens to, that is a big deal. They got to deal with it. And it's a loss of money. Anyways, what you're doing is you're demonstrating respect for that person that disagrees with you and you're demonstrating empathy for that person of like, oh, I, I'm not going to concede that they're ruining the livestock industry because that's simply not true. But I did learn that on these instances, you know, there's some some good work that needs to be done and it might not always be done, being done right. And the person in this imaginary conversation that we're having, you can still say, these aren't good reasons to kill wolves. It's, it's still totally fine and appropriate because it's true um, to kind of come back to this isn't a reason to get rid of 90% of, of, of Idaho's wolves or whatever state we might be talking about. So anyways, yeah. Yeah, it is so disgusting. And just back with just hunting, we yeah. we don't have the data. And the, the, the methods of how they're hunting them are so inhumane. I can't even believe we're like in this day and age, we're like, this is okay. And I think it comes back to the fact that John, that many people don't know what's going on. We have a group of rotten, nasty apples that need to get out of there. But people don't realize like for, to my understanding wolves can be trapped um they could be hunted at night they could be ran down with snowmobiles they could be hunted uh, with dogs they could be uh poisoned uh pups can be killed it's yeah. like horrific way like these are not humane ethical practices right yeah you know i, I that's absolutely true I couldn't agree more and uh, it is important to distinguish uh, between uh, why we hunt something and how we go about doing it. Yes. Uh, this is true for all aspects of life. Why are you doing it and how are you doing it? You can go wrong in both ways or you can get it right in both ways. I would say that um, the easier ground for regular folks to have conversations about is the why part. When we're having conversations with other people, I think it's a little easier to talk about why it is that we want to hunt wolves rather than some of the more technical issues about like what's the right percentage that could be killed and not harm the population there's a lot of science there it can get a little complicated and also about like how are we killing them how are we killing them in many cases is simply very painful very horrible way to die in many cases plain old humane 
but also some of those things are just difficult to have conversations about. But the why question is not so difficult because it starts off with the simplest question you can have with anyone. What counts as a good reason to kill another animal? Man, we should we should be able to have a conversation about that. And you can say, okay, well, with elk and deer and moose, you know, the reason we hunt them in many cases is for the meat. You're like, yeah, I'm cool with that. And if you're not cool with that, if you don't eat meat or don't think that's the right reason, that's a very fine thing to have a conversation about too, even with somebody who disagrees with it. Because here's the thing, is that when you're talking about stuff like that, you're mostly talking about values. And we don't all have equal access to the facts. Some of the facts are complicated and technical, and some of us just disagree with the facts. But when it comes to values, we're all kind of on a level playing field for like, there's a way in which you should be able to explain your values to me, and I should be able to explain your values to you. And on some points, we'll disagree, and it's okay, and it doesn't matter. And other points, we'll disagree, and it does matter. We should be good at explaining that to each other. Now, when you when we talk about um, hunting again, things like elk, basically, if you eat meat, that's a relatively easy conversation to have. When it comes to hunting wolves, what's the reason? We don't eat them, and then you get into these other businesses where, well, they eat elk that I'd like to hunt too. You don't even really need to get into too many more facts than just that they eat elk, and I'd like to eat elk. That's not a reason to kill another animal just because it eats the same thing that you eat. And again, same thing with livestock. We talk, You only have to know a few facts about livestock to know that that's not a good reason to kill wolves. Anyways, and you just kind of keep on pressing on that issue. Why is this the right thing to do? And you know, you got to expect the person who you're speaking to, they'll press back. You're like, oh, I think it is a good reason, and, and you got to tell me why your reason is okay. And uh, anyways, I think the values actually are a little bit easier to deal with um, because we're a little bit on equal footing that way when, we, when we're speaking with people we disagree with. Yeah, and you are currently, I, I, I didn't realize this, but efforts and protections for the gray wolf, they're being ushered along by the Biden administration. So they're not going to be stepping in to help. They're just trying to usher it along to end protections. Yeah. I am so disappointed. I thought that that administration would 100% step in and uh protect one of our most iconic species a keystone species i mean i'm just shocked so you are at the forefront of basically trying to get protection to relist these wolves back on the endangered species list right yeah no no um it is complicated it's disappointing uh the what the biden administration's approach seems to be at this moment to my knowledge they haven't made final decisions but the writing on the wall as though that is as though they're not going to do too much and here is where things um get a little complicated there's a legal aspect and there's a political aspect first the legal aspect um whatever it is the biden administration does it has to be aligned with the law And what they can't do is they can't say, oh, well, because states are making decisions that lots of people don't like about hunting, that actually by itself is not a reason to re-enlist. What they have to do is answer a very difficult question that quite frankly hasn't been answered in the United States, and it's a question that too few people have their attention on. A little bit illegal stuff here. The Endangered Species Act has a legal definition for an endangered species. And it's kind of wonky, but we gotta go through it. It is, open quote, a species is endangered if it is at risk of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of their range. And it's that last phrase, throughout all or significant portion of their range, that is extremely important and very much unsettled. Basically what it means is, and we can use wolves as an example, They, in the lower 48, they used to live most places. 
like basically everywhere except for the southeast. And now they live in about 15% of the places that they used to be, which is basically the northern Rockies and the northern uh, Great Lakes area. And so the question, quite frankly, the unanswered question is over what range do they need to be living and living securely before we say they're not endangered? Can they live over 5% of their range and we'll call it good? Do they have to live over all of their historic range before we'd call it good? That'd be a little tough to do because that would mean they'd have to live in downtown Phoenix and downtown Chicago and stuff like that. Clearly, that's not the expectation. But let me, let me just go a little bit further. You know, when you say, what's an endangered species? And you'd, you'd say tigers. You'd say, yeah, tigers endangered species. Squirrels. You'd say, no, squirrels not an endangered species. Panda bears. You'd say, yeah, panda bears are endangered. So we think we recognize what's an endangered species and what's not. But actually, in the United States, when it comes to the law, we actually don't know what's the boundary between an endangered species and one that's not. It's a basic question of environmental ethics. And that's the question that no one, not the Department of Justice, not the Department, not the Fish and Wildlife Service, not any, not any advocacy group, um, one way or the other, has answered that question. And the law requires us to answer it. And so that's the legal aspect of it. Um, I'll pause there because it was a political answer to the whole thing too. But what do you, what uh, what what issues come up there? You think when we talk about the legal stuff? I think I, I think there's so much going on, yeah. and I think I, yeah, I yeah. Please please go into it legally because I would like yeah. to uh, like to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I, again, I think the the main thing is that it is kind of an abstract question, and law sometimes makes for abstract questions. But if if you work through it a little bit, and in, in, in fact, the way that I've done. How much historic range does a species have to occupy before we say it's no longer endangered? That we can wrap our minds around. It's not too hard. And wolves are a great example. Is it, do they have to live in the 15% of the places that they used to? Is that good enough? Or does it have to be half the places that they used to? You can have a conversation like that. And, and what I find really sad and frustrating is that we're not even having a conversation. And again, it's not about wolves. It's about all endangered species. It's about our relationship with nature on the whole. When we're done with it, are we happy with the notion that we're going to have just tiny little relics of species? They're going to be essentially museum pieces. They occur in tiny little places that they used to, the places that we decided we're not going to use for our own interest, or are we going to find ways to coexist? Are we going to find ways to coexist with as many of the creatures in as many of the places as they used to be as possible? That's really what's at the heart of the matter. Um, anyways, but the Biden administration does have to kind of answer that question, and, and they're not really answering it. But nor did the, uh, nor did the Trump administration, nor did the, the um, Obama administration, nor did the Clinton administration. I mean, none, no Democrat or Republican administration has really faced this question as they should have. Now let's go to the politics, if you don't mind, which is separate from the law. And this has a different flavor, and it has to do with why did Biden behave this way? There's so many you know, high expectations for what the Biden administration will do. Um, so much more progressive uh, than the previous administration. And here's the thing, and I want to make a comparison with the Obama administration before, because the Obama administration was a similar disappointment with many wildlife issues and was a similar disappointment with the Endangered Species Act. And I think it, it, this is the intuitions that I have. I don't know if I'm right, but they're 
the thoughts that I have anyways, is that when we think about our relationship with nature, things are changing, especially if you think about Clinton administration to Obama administration to Biden administration. One of the things that's different now than it was at the turn of the century is our relationship with climate change. Our relationship with climate change is that we're starting to realize, holy smokes, this is a big deal. We have got to start acting. I mean, it's a little bit of day late and a dollar short, but better late than never. But we're we're kind of starting to get it politically that we have to make big changes, important changes with respect to climate change. That's a big part of our relationship with nature. But here's the thing about it. When we change our relationship with nature for climate change, we're doing it for us. We're doing it because we're going to be screwed if we don't make those changes. It's still about the environment. It's still really important to change, but we see it very much as about us. When you look at the Endangered Species Act, when you look at endangered species issues, when you look at habitat protection, when you look at biodiversity, that's also an environmental issue, but it's somehow less about us humans. And I think politically, that's like the new fault line. Fault line might be not quite the right word. And sadly, our mainstream politicians, Democrat or Republican, don't really care enough about things that aren't human to be making decisions in their favor. Even when it would be good for humans too, we're still looking at like what's just the most dire things that are important for humans. So we see these wildfires, we see these hurricanes, and we think, holy buckets, we got to do something. And, and you know, th- thankfully we're starting to do stuff. But, you know, we're, we're, our mainstream politicians aren't there with wildlife. That, I think, is the explanation for why Biden has disappointed so many on this particular issue. While it's disappointing, it's important to recognize because it shows those of us who do care about non-humans where we have to do a better job of explaining why it's important. And I think that's an important thing to do. Uh, The Biden administration has a lot of difficult things to do right now. They, They have sadly limited bandwidth and they can only take care of so many things and it's there's a burden on us to make the case for why it is that these non-humans that we share the planet with they deserve a little bit better and while it's important to do things that are important for humans we, we got to do more i mean that's a, that's a burden for us and we got to recognize it straight up 100 percent. well john we are nearing the end of our interview uh audience i please uh you know definitely want to recommend john's book restoring the balance what wolves tell us about our relationship with nature which will be out october 12th john what can someone do right now though to help wolves my goodness, uh, one of the things you can do right now is you can write your um, representative both at the state level and at the federal level. If you write your representative at the federal level in Washington, D.C., you're asking them to reinstate protections for wolves on the Endangered Species Act. If you're at the state level and if you're in a state that has wolves, you know, ask your representative, uh, your senator, uh, to uh, you know, oppose wolf hunting. The other thing you can do is there are advocacy groups that live where you are. Um, the easiest one, because they can be found anywhere, would be the Humane Society of the United States. They're very engaged with wolf issues. Another would be Defenders of Wildlife. They mm-hmm. also are very engaged with wolf issues. Either one of those um, uh, organizations are easy to find and connect with, and you can connect with them and ask them a little bit more specifically in your area. What are the kinds of things you can do. And if you don't mind me saying, 
Mm. I think that purchasing a copy of Restoring the Balance might be a good thing ultimately to do with wolves or for wolves because uh, you can learn so much about them. Uh, you can learn how it is that they uh, have these individual lives, and uh, and I think that'll be inspiring for people as well. That's amazing, John. Well, John, will you join me for a few minutes for the after show? I would love to. Woo! All right, audience, if you want to join us for the after show, just head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. I'll put a link in the show notes so you get the full interview. Let's do it. All right, so John, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, congrats on writing a book. Did you enjoy that process of writing a book, or was it like the biggest pain? <laughs> it was both at the same time. You know, I've been doing this work for, for three decades now, and uh, these reflections and idea have been accumulating, and they were kind of banging on the walls of my mind. They had to get out, and so I let them escape into a book. And in that regard, it was a, it was really was a huge release. It was therapeutic, um, but at the same time, it's it is a labor of love. Uh, and a lot of it is just the mechanics of the writing. It's 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 a long endeavor. It's a you know it's a, a full length book, so you have to just keep at it chapter after chapter. And I had an amazing editor at Johns Hopkins University Press. She taught me so much about writing. And um, and so the the craft of the writing was really important to me too. So I, uh, I mean, I'm tooting my own horn here certainly, but uh, you know, I I think the ideas that I have to share are um, distinctive just because of the experiences that I've had, and um, and and the and the way in which they're expressed I think is is been done nicely. It's it's well written if you don't mind me saying. Yeah, of course. I I honestly cannot wait to read it. And I was gonna say. How long did it take you to, to write the book? Oh my gosh, there is a way in which it's taken me a decade to write the book. Uh-huh. Uh, the, you know, in, in, in some ways I've been writing it in earnest over about a two-year period, but many of the things that are in the book are from field notes that I had taken at the time. Um, and so that's you know been over you know 15 years or so that I've been drawing on field notes. Uh, the book itself is a, is a part memoir. And so it is just, you know, on this day in the field, we did these things and we saw these amazing things about what the wolves are doing. Some of the writing in the book is natural history writing where you just learn about the science behind what the life of a wolf and moose is all about. And uh, and then and some of the writing is a, is a history of the project itself. It's the longest study of any predator prey system in the world. So there's a lot of history to go through uh, that's very interesting. And then some of the book is... Um, tied to what some of your readers may know or may not know about is that on Isle Royal in the last 10 years or so, the wolves had not done very well. They almost went extinct. Hmm. And the National Park Service had to make a difficult decision about what to do, to let them go extinct or whether to restore um, wolf predation on Isle Royal. They decided to store wolf predation. They made the right choice. And this speaks to the title of the book, Restoring the Balance. Mm -hmm. But one of the things uh, that was challenging is that I'm not so sure that all of the reasons that have been offered for why it was the right thing are quite on the money, even some of the reasons that I've offered in the past. And so a, a portion of the book is kind of a exploration of why was it the right thing to do. And it's important to answer that because Isle Royal is not important only for its own sake. It's an example of something much bigger, which is basically – we live on an increasingly crowded planet. There's a lot of humans on the planet, and humans dominate a ton of stuff agriculturally in built-up areas, and we got to share it with nature. And in that 
crowded world. We got to figure out how to do it. What's the right way to do it? When do we protect things? Do we have to make the difficult decision of just letting some things go? Anyways, I explore some of those issues in the book as well. So the book is uh, really a cornucopia of, of different ideas. And, um, and, and some of it, you know, have thoughts that I've had for a very, very long time. And some are thoughts that I've had more recently. And some, quite frankly, I think readers will find are thoughts that are still unresolved in my own mind and just sharing with, uh, with readers where I'm at on some of these difficult issues. That's awesome, John. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I know you have to go. I appreciate your time. I thank you for being a voice for wolves. And I'm so excited to release this for our listeners to, you know, try to take action. And I just, yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Gosh, it was, it was a, it was a delight for me as well. And I'm, I'm so glad for the time. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.